God, to whom can we turn? You have the words of life. Pray that this morning we would hear them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The second lesson is a short passage from the book of Hebrews. Since, therefore, the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to come like like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That line about Jesus destroying death caught my attention uh, And so I decided to preach on this passage. Seven out of ten people, uh, seven out of ten Americans believe in heaven. Some version of heaven where good people go and are rewarded in some way. I imagine that a good chunk of those Americans, uh, you know, a handful of those people are are Christians who go to church regularly, who are informed by... uh, yeah, a Christian understanding of what heaven is. I imagine some of those people are a part of other religions uh, that believe in heaven. And I suppose a few of the seven out of ten probably believe in heaven for other reasons. Um, you know, why not believe in heaven? It's a nice idea that there's something eternal after we die. There's endless golf or wine or white beaches or whatever it is. That's a nice idea. Uh, why not believe in it? What do you have to lose? Um, Each week, we say the Apostles' Creed, and it ends with that line, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And I love that line, because I have a hard time believing in those things. I don't think I would believe in them without the resurrection of Jesus. It just doesn't make sense to me outside of that context. And I know people, I've had conversations with a lot of people who have no problem believing in heaven and an afterlife and have a much harder time believing in Jesus. I don't know, that, that, that may be you. Um, but each time we say it, it's one of the lines that, you know, a lot of these lines don't sound fresh. You know, you, it's, it's very rare that one of the lines is like, wow, I really heard that line today, right? But the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting for me sounds fresh and encouraging pretty often. I'm encouraged and reminded that this is part of who I am, part of who we are. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. I'm nervous about preaching on this, though, because I'm very aware that Christianity has earned the reputation of being so concerned about what happens in the life everlasting that we entirely neglect this life. Terrible things have been done in the name of the life everlasting. Colonialism was done partly under the guise of the life everlasting, bringing eternal life to people. 
Christianity has done terrible things to a lot of people in the name of eternal life. You're perhaps familiar with churches that seem to only ever talk about heaven, who talk about heaven as in what it's like, who is in, who is out, how to make sure you're on the right side, how to make sure you know who's not on the right side. Maybe some of you grew up in churches where the policy was basically who would care about climate change anyways because this world is not our home. The last thing I want to do is affirm those stereotypes. But I also think that the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is far too important and far too beautiful to be satisfied with shallow and weak understandings. And also as a pastor and as a human being, in those most important moments of life, like when grief and joy are at their highest points, what we believe about the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting matters so much. So much hinges on it. And I don't think I've ever preached about it, and I can't recall many sermons specifically on it. And so I wanted to preach about it. But I am a little nervous. Our passage in Hebrew, in Hebrews, the, the book of Hebrews is asking a couple of questions. It's asking, um, it's written to second generation Christians. So these are Christians who aren't first-hand witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. The author probably is a first-hand witness of the resurrection of Jesus, writing to second generation Christians who are facing increased persecution. Their lives are becoming more and more under threat. And so Hebrews is essentially a sermon. It's basically, it's basically a really long sermon. It doesn't have some of the personal sort of anecdotes that other letters have. It's really a, a long sermon. I think 13 chapters. One of the longest letters in the New Testament. And it's asking some important questions like, why do we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? And what does it mean? In particular, what does it mean for this community? Our passage begins by saying that because God's children have flesh and blood, that God had to have flesh and blood in order to go through death, in order to destroy death and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. Earlier it talks about, you know, all things were made by Jesus and through Jesus. And so the problem of death, this this cycle of violence and death that the world finds itself caught in. It was going to be up to Jesus whether that cycle was broken. It was kind of, you know, the language makes me think of when, when Maya um, is like scared of something. Um, and, uh, and, and, and like if she's scared of, uh, of an aunt or an uncle or someone she shouldn't be scared of. And so I go up and I give them a hug and I'm buddy-buddy with them to try and show Maya that it's okay that this person is fine. Some of the language in Hebrews about how Jesus conquers death and goes through it on our behalf kind of made me think of that image. Um, But if anyone is going to save us from death, it's going to be God. And if God is going to save us mortals from death, he's going to have to do it as a mortal. Death wasn't viewed as the evolutionary necessity that we might think of it as today, nor as a puzzle to be solved. It was a curse under which the people lived. We view it a little bit differently, but I still think this line in in, in Hebrews of living under the slavery of fear of death aptly describes our culture. I saw a magazine cover not too long ago with the heading, something 
to the effect of, you know, the cure for death, our last frontier. It was an article about, I think, Google's efforts to discover immortality, the fountain of youth now through technological advances. Can we finally cure death? We've come a long way in 2,000 years, but when you look at the ways in which our fear of death has led us to institutionalize it, to hide it, to deny it, or to try to conquer it, it becomes clear that the fear of death is still a curse under which we live. But the author of Hebrews says incredibly that there is another way of living. There is a deeper life. And in order to make that life a possibility, God had to take on flesh and pass through suffering and death as a pioneer on our behalf. Pioneer is a word. Um, it's, it's the same word for author. Pioneer and author. He'll, the author will use it later um, you know, he, to describe Jesus in that famous passage from, from Hebrews 11, the author and perfecter of our faith. But he describes Jesus as a pioneer. A pioneer is someone who... Uh, creates a path when there was no path, who, who cuts through the forest brush so that others can follow behind. A pioneer leads the way in something. And Hebrews describes Jesus as a pioneer. I was thinking of, of occasions on which I, I, I've said to someone, eh, you first. And I thought of ziplining uh, is an instance where I prefer to see someone go first. Um, I remembered a particular time, um, some like, some cave climbing when I was a kid in South Dakota. And you go to the visitor center and there's this cement block and um, there's a hole cut through this cement block and it says, this is the smallest passage you're going to have to fit through. So if you can do it here, you'll be able to do it at the cave, right? And I was a kid, so it was pretty easy for me to get through. And I thought, no problem, like, this is easy. And then, um, but in the cave, like, it's dark and it's not a perfect rectangle that you crawl through, right? It's it's a crevice that you have to squeeze through and you can't see the other end. You can't see what you're dropping, like what you're climbing into. And, um, and so I started freaking out and I needed someone to go through that first for me. I needed to watch my dad, bigger than me, fit through. And then I needed to hear him say, um, it opens up. It opens up on the other side. You'll be fine. If you can just get through this, it's much easier. The way out, you can see the light, it's fine. And I think he probably needed the guide to go through before he went through. Um, But I needed to watch someone go through it so that I had the courage to go through it. This is is the the, the imagery that Hebrews Hebrews uses. And Hebrews is a long book. It uses a lot of imagery. But that's just one um, one of the ways that Hebrews talks about Jesus conquering death passing through it on our behalf so that we too could have hope in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Only God could save us. And it is by embracing death and suffering that God empties them of the power that they have to hold people captive. Jesus passing through death and the resurrection of his body authors the possibility that death is not ultimate, but that a deeper life is possible. Miroslav Volf says it this way, death is not the worst thing that can happen to a human being. Biological death can't be the greatest evil because biological life is not the highest good. If it were, martyrdom wouldn't make any sense. Now there is a deeper life that gives meaning and direction to biological life. And to save that life, Jesus' disciples might need to lose their biological lives. He's, he's talking about that passage where Jesus says, don't save your life only to lose it, 
where he's talking about that deeper life that his disciples um, are encouraged to live into. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is worthless, and so is your faith. The early church believes in the resurrection of the body because they saw it. They saw the suffering and pain that Jesus endured, and they saw that he overcame it. Both the death and the resurrection of Christ give them hope that Jesus is with them in their suffering. There is no pain that he's not acquainted with. There is no anxiety that he doesn't know. And through resurrection, God has claimed victory on our behalf. Todd Billings, a theologian from the seminary that I went to, says it this way, Christians do not hope for heaven because it is poetic justice that provides an appropriate ending to reward the goodness of human lives. Instead, Christians believe in Jesus Christ, whose resurrection is the first fruits of the coming age that has entered into our age. We do not hope for heaven because it's poetic justice to provide appropriate endings. We believe in the resurrection because Jesus Christ died and is risen and Christ will come again, what we say every week. But what does this hope mean? For generations, this hope has given people the courage to live with the confidence that death does not have the final say. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter uh, from the Birmingham jail has this, has this section kind of in the middle of it where he talks about the colony of heaven. And he talks about the early Christians who were willing uh, to challenge the empire, particularly on issues like infanticide and, um, and, 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 and the gladiator ring and caring for the poor even when sickness was breaking out. He talks about the early church having the courage to go into cities and disrupting the peace because they belonged to the colony of heaven. They believed in a kingdom that would have no end. They believed in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And their allegiance was to a kingdom and not a world that could simply kill the flesh. And of course, King's own civil rights movement refused to use violence because they believed in a guaranteed future where weapons would be made into farm tools. And he sacrificed his life because he had been to the mountaintop and believed that a future kingdom was pressing into our reality and that in the end, the everlasting life that Christ promised would win out. Only something like that will give you the courage to give your life. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. The promise of a future age is not simply fodder for fantastic or wishful thinking. Our hope, Billings writes, is to be part of the resistance. Is to be part of the resistance to the present order of death and sin, entering into the struggle against the powers of this dark world, And we do this by practicing resurrection. Practicing resurrection is the the title of of a famous poem by Wendell Berry. It's also the title of a book by Eugene Peterson, Practice Resurrection, in which Peterson writes, the church is an appointed gathering of named people in particular places who practice a life of resurrection in a world in which death gets the biggest headlines. The practice of resurrection is an intentional deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life out of death. Life that trumps death. Life that is the last word. Jesus' life. 
Barry's poem gives us some examples of what practicing resurrection is like. I'd encourage you to read the full, the full poem. It's really beautiful. But some of the things that, that Wendell Berry says are practicing resurrection are these. Know your neighbors. Do not be afraid of death. Every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. Ask questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias, though you will not see the harvest. Laugh. Be joyful, though you have all the facts. Please women more than men. Lie and rest your head in the shade. Be like the fox, who makes more tracks than necessary some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. I was talking with a friend recently who reminded me that he lives in an area where he sees billboards very frequently that say something to the effect of, heaven or hell, you choose. All around our country, there are billboards like that. All around our country, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is reduced to sound bites and billboards that read something to the effect of heaven or hell you decide. The author of Hebrews writes, Jesus has destroyed the power of death to free all those whose lives are held in slavery by the fear of death. Somewhere along the way, the message got lost. When I was a youth pastor for a few years in California, I took a group of middle schoolers to a winter retreat. And we had a great time playing capture the flag and laser tag, and I loved it. But on the final night of the retreat, the camp dimmed the lights and and played the ambient worship music, and a speaker skillfully worked his sermon towards that terrifying question. If you don't know where you would go if you died... And a room full of 7th graders was told to raise their hands if they wanted to be sure they were going to heaven. Maybe this is familiar to you. Christianity is a life, Marilyn Robinson writes, not a doctrine. And in that moment, I felt like a doctrine of fear was being offered to these kids as cheap imitation of the good news of resurrection. I could not and cannot imagine that the eternal destinies of these beautiful, awkward humans rested on the hormones and social pressures that were at work in that room. I wanted to hold their arms down. I wanted to tell them, God isn't like this. Petty and manipulative, checking names off of some master list, I wanted to tell them that they couldn't do a single thing to make God love them any more than he already did, and they couldn't do a single thing to make God love them any less. Maybe I did tell them something like that later on. I don't remember. The world doesn't need any more billboards. The world doesn't need any more reasons to be afraid. The world needs a people who practice resurrection. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. 
We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. May you have the courage to live that way this week. Will you pray with me? Oh God, thank you for making the decision to save us from the cycle of death. Thank you for acting in history, for taking on flesh, for enduring suffering, for going through death, for doing that all on our behalf. Thank you for doing that so that we might be free from the fear of death that has gripped so many. God, I pray that this week you would give give us a vision and a confidence in the resurrection life that you've promised. I pray that we would be people who practice resurrection, who do things that don't compute, who love people who who don't seem to deserve it, who extend grace when it doesn't make sense. Help us to practice resurrection. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.